Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Paul Wirth, and I'm a host here at the New Books Network on the Eastern European Studies channel. And we have for you a really interesting discussion on this episode. We know a lot about the space race, that is the U.S.-Soviet competition in and over the cosmos, but a good deal less about space collaboration, when the two superpowers work together to solve technical problems and promote peace. Such is a key assertion of a new book by Andrew Jenks, Collaboration in Space and the Search for Peace on Earth, forthcoming with Anthem Press in November of 2021. Professor Jenks recounts that the Apollo-Soyuz test project, a key program and catalyst for detente, marked the transition to a new age of space collaboration, which continued through the Soviet intercosmos missions, the Mir shuttle dockings of the early 1990s, and on through the International Space Station. Europeans, Americans, and Russians envisioned space collaboration as a way to reconfigure political and international relations. Professor Jenks is no newcomer to issues about space, technology, and Russian and Soviet history. A professor at uh, Cal State University in Long Beach, he's the author of numerous articles and several books, including Russia in a Box, Art and Identity in the Age of Revolution, published in 2005, The Perils of Progress, Environmental Disasters in the 20th Century, published in 2010, and The Cosmonaut Who Couldn't Stop Smiling, The Life and Legend of Yuri Gagarin, published in 2012. Professor Jenks is also an editor of a leading journal in Russian history, namely Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. And I'm thrilled that he is here today to tell us about his book, Collaboration in Space. Welcome, Professor Jenks. Thank you, Paul. This is uh, really uh, an honor to uh, be able to speak about my book. And of course, uh, uh, we academics love to talk about our research. So thank you for that opportunity. We do indeed. And I expect on that basis, we'll have a really interesting conversation. Let me start by trying to sketch out uh, or get you rather to sketch out a little bit about who the sort of the main players are in the story that you're telling. Who are the main protagonists? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, of course, we have the United States and the USSR, but uh, should we be more specific about particular people, particular agencies? And were there other players to take note of in this process of space collaboration? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it, it touches upon one of the things that really fascinated me in my research as I went through the archival sources both the Russian ones and also in the case of uh, the United States and the Nixon Library and elsewhere. And one of the things that struck me was the central role of some European players, in particular France. And, um, you know, France's example of reaching across the ideological uh, barriers of the Cold War in the 1960s under de Gaulle and his successors uh, was actually an example that inspired uh, Nixon to engage in his policy of detente. And I think one thing that the French did that uh, in particular interested both uh, Nixon and also Brezhnev and Kasigan is that France saw technology and science as a kind of neutral ground, supposedly, uh, that could um, project uh, relations between France and the Soviet Union to an area beyond uh, ideology. In other words, it was a way to find a place where they could come together rather than thinking about the things that, uh, ideologically speaking, that separated them. And uh, so France engaged in a series of uh, collaborative agreements uh, beginning in 1966 that resulted in extensive uh, cooperation between French physicists and scientists and also politicians and uh, their Soviet counterparts. And that was something that was noticed very much, uh, for example, by Henry Kissinger, and the National uh, Security Council, uh, that they felt that that was something that was very significant and, in fact, formed uh, part of the inspiration for the policy that we know as detente uh, that 
that Nixon initiated. Uh, and in particular, what they learned from the French was that they could um, begin that policy, the resetting of relations in some supposedly non-ideological sphere, technology and science, and that this would be the beginning of a new kind of relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. And they chose collaboration in space as the beginning point, and that culminated in July of 1975 in the Apollo-Soyuz test project link-up between the Apollo and the Soyuz capsule. Right, yeah, really interesting that there were uh, these uh, various players. And uh, I'm wondering maybe uh, just for the sake of those people not old enough to recall it or maybe who don't know about it, maybe you can describe the significance of that 1975 uh, joint mission and especially that uh, iconic handshake between Alexei Leonov and Thomas Stafford in 1975. I recall it as a, a seven-year-old child at the time. But what did it mean for people at the time and uh, do, do we have a sense for the ways in which ordinary people in different countries reacted to this moment? Yeah, I was a, I mean, space was the place that in many ways defined Cold War competition. Um, it was um, the space race as we, as we know it with a kind of shorthand, um, I think shaped people's consciousness in both the Soviet Union, the United States and elsewhere around the world. And so there was a, an excessive sort of uh, extreme nationalization of space science and technology and of space exploration in general. Uh, so the idea that these competing superpowers and others such as France would um, abandon or at least put aside competition for a bit and cooperate was uh, extremely uh, appealing to people. I think it really connected with people, ordinary people. Um, and it, it, it occurred against the backdrop of what people were also aware of profoundly, and that was the possibility of the complete and total destruction and annihilation of the earth as a result of the nuclear policy of mutual assured destruction. Um, so the idea that you could use space technology not to kill people, but actually to bring people together had a kind of emotional appeal uh, that also combined, by the way, with, in general, the emotions that are elicited by seeing the earth from space that give people this sense of connectedness. Um, and all that produced, I think, a very profound kind of celebration that allowed people to feel a kind of common humanity with others that they had considered the enemy. Now, that wasn't a universal feeling by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one that was quite common, both in the United States and in particular in the Soviet Union. And I should point out here that the one thing that the, I think that made it more difficult for Americans to understand the appeal of peace was because Americans had not really suffered so much from the horrors of war the, ways that, the way that others, in particular the Soviets, had. The Soviets had a profound sort of uh, memory, a trauma that was inflicted by the mass death of World War II and the Nazi invasion and the nearly 30 million uh, Soviets who died. Uh, and, and Brezhnev himself, as Don Raleigh points out in um, an article that he published in Kritika, styled himself as a man of peace precisely because of his genuine desire to never have the kind of destruction that happened in World War II. And I think that that desire for peace was manifested, particularly for Soviet citizens, but also for many Americans, in that handshake between Leonov and Stafford, and in general, in the Apollo-Soyuz test project. It signaled for many people the dawning of a new age. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I do think that sense of peace or that desire for peace, it was something that I, when I visited the USSR for the first time in 1988, it was really uh, palpable. And the memory of the war was uh, visible, discernible virtually everywhere. It was only four decades earlier, of course, that the war had ended. Uh, and I think that's a really important observation about the kind of mentality that of the Soviet Union and Soviet people, including uh, Soviet leader Brezhnev, brought to this. I, I'm wondering, it, it sounds to me like there's actually really a kind of deeply emotional component. You actually used that word uh, in uh, your previous uh, remarks, an emotional component to this element of collaboration, partly rooted, as you say here, in the issue of trauma, especially on the Soviet side. 
but it sounds as though also in a kind of awe and excitement rooted in the experience of space flight itself. Can you talk more about that emotional component, what it meant and the role it played in forging this collaboration? Yeah, that's a uh, uh, another really interesting aspect of the space age and an irony that um, what, I mean, let's face it, what drove both the United States and the Soviet Union initially uh, into space was a desire to develop uh, intercontinental ballistic missile technology delivery systems for nuclear weapons. Um, but there's an irony that uh, once people actually got into space and looked back down at the earth, they saw an earth that was not divided by the the lines that we would see on maps that we usually look at. Um, and there was a phenomenon known as the overview effect that was noted by um, a, a guy named Frank White. Uh, and he interviewed many of the cosmonauts and astronauts and other space travelers. And it was almost as if they had had an aha moment, the sort of LSD moment when they looked down at the earth and they felt this sense of cosmic connectedness. Um, and for a moment, at least, they seemed to transcend all of their earthly sort of attachments and ways of thinking. And I think it was that 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 sense of transcendence of looking back at the earth and being able to feel this connectedness to other people, to other cultures, to bigger things um, that uh, made politics as usual seem insignificant and much less meaningful. Uh, and, and that's a very emotional feeling. It's almost a, a kind of religious um, born again experience. Uh, there were particular uh, cosmonauts and astronauts, Russell Schweikert in the US case, who definitely had a profound sort of uh, change. They went up into space as uh, cold warriors, as servants of their military industrial complexes, and they looked back at the earth and uh, they became peaceniks, or at least uh, they, they spoke like peaceniks. And I think genuinely many of them did. Edgar Mitchell is another example of that. And on the Soviet side, uh, you know, Alexei Leonov had this uh, uh, incredible sort of transformative moment in 1965 when he was the first person to become a spacewalker, uh, to float in, uh, in space and to look down upon the earth. And uh, almost as if, as he described it, he was... Um, emerging from the womb or within the womb, within the ambiotic fluid, however you want to put it. But it, it, it tended to evoke all these very emotional kinds of feelings. Uh, and this is something also that many of the psychologists who studied individuals who went into space noted, that otherwise very sort of technical and matter-of-fact people uh, became very emotional and almost lyrical and poetic uh, when they began speaking from space as they gazed down upon the earth. Well, that's very interesting. I, I've never been to space. I can't imagine that I uh, will make it there. Although I guess the opportunities are much greater now than they had been in the past. I don't think I command the wealth to be able to do that. But it's, I think it's easy to imagine how uh, seeing the earth from above would have that kind of, yeah, that sort of con conversion experience or have that sort of profound effect. But of course, uh, these were the lucky ones, one can say, the people, the cosmonauts, the astronauts that you're mentioning who had the opportunity to be up there and to see the world from up there. And they could, I suppose, uh, describe that experience, translate it, perhaps even alter their behavior upon return. But there was still, I guess, the fundamental question of what is the role of space for these superpowers and even for um, lesser powers, we'll say, like France. And so to what extent did the different figures uh, involved in all of this regard space as, on the one hand, principally a kind of extension uh, of international politics, that is another arena, if you will, uh, or alternatively as an arena distinct from those here on Earth? And which way of thinking about that problem proved more compelling? I mean, you have the cosmonauts on the one hand, but you also have politicians and statesmen who uh, have you know, different tasks uh, to resolve, right? Yes, and uh, of course, the military-industrial complexes that stand behind them. And uh, yeah, it's a very tricky question, a difficult one to answer. I do attempt to answer it in the book, but um, the way I answer it may sound a bit wishy-washy, but I think it's a, it doesn't have to be one or the other. That, in fact, I think one of the appeals of uh, space exploration 
as uh, with, let's say, nuclear power is that it can attract a variety of constituencies and supporters. Uh, nuclear power, of course, is something that military industrial complexes and people that want to develop uh, nuclear weapons will be eager to uh, pursue. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's something that provides the promise of unlimited and, well, at one point at least, people thought clean uh, power, electricity that could fuel uh, a, a future of abundance. Um, and so you could be um, very different kinds of people with regard to your political attitudes and whether or not you were a militaristic person, uh, jingoistic or internationalist, but both of you could agree that you could support uh, nuclear power. And I think the same is true of space exploration, is that, that indeed there is this constant tension in the history of space exploration between, on the one hand, the projection of national priorities and uh, economic and military strategic uh, needs into new space. Um, and on the other hand, the viewing of that new space as a chance for a do-over, a new start. Uh, and the, the, the tension between these two impulses and the clash between them actually produces the ambiguous and contradictory nature of the enterprise itself. And that continues to this day. Um, you know, just to give you one example, we have uh, you know, um, on the one hand, we have these visions of uh, colonizing Mars, of, uh, of investigating the cosmos, uh, of people coming together uh, and uh, joining together to solve problems uh, that are common to all human beings through space exploration. Uh, we have that. But then we have the announcement by uh, Trump and the previous administration to create a new uh, military wing that would be devoted to uh, space, uh, populating space. So we have these competing desires. We see this even, you know, let's look at the, uh, the former space shuttle program. In any given space shuttle launch, there was the public face of the space shuttle launch, which was presented as civilian and devoted to scientific payloads or to uh, beneficial commercial satellite uh, development, that kind of thing. But then there were the secret payloads that were funded by the Pentagon and the military. Both of those payloads sat side by side on the same missions. The same was true with the Soviet Union and with Russia later on. So I don't think it's the case that one impulse uh, is victorious over the other, but rather they exist simultaneously in a kind of dialectical and dynamic tension. And that is the byproduct of that interaction that produces um, the space exploration that we get. It, by the way, this is not unprecedented. If we look at the history of uh, exploration, um, if we look at European imperialism, uh, many Europeans saw uh, the settlement of territory outside of Europe as an opportunity to produce a new kind of world that would abandon the bad old ways of doing things back in Europe. Um, on the other hand, uh, as the Europeans uh, explored uh, new territories, uh, they often brought with them the same old way of doing things that they had thought that they left behind. Um, and the result of those two different tendencies is something really interesting, right? And the same is true of space exploration. By the way, the same is true of internet, of, the, uh, of cyberspace, simultaneously being colonized by the NSA and uh, by Russian trolls, and at the same time also colonized uh, by those that believe that new kinds of community, human community, and new attitudes that are far more sort of progressive and tolerant can emerge from the colonization of cyberspace. And uh, so it's not one or the other in my view. It's, it's, it's both in a kind of really interesting and ambiguous and uh, dynamic tension. Well, and it sounds uh, from what you're saying as though one could say that uh, this uh, uh, activities in space by the superpowers is in a sense simultaneously also uh, a, an artifact of the Cold War in the kind of negative sense, in the sort of confrontational sense on the one hand, and detente is a more sort of positive stage, shall we say, or maybe positive, an attempt, I suppose, to lessen those tensions. I mean, along those lines, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe beyond what you've said so far, and you've of course said a lot, but I'm wondering if there's a way in which for our listeners you could situate um, the space collaboration and some of the competition perhaps that preceded it or went alongside of it in the ways that you're just describing, 
what is its place in the larger history of the Cold War, like say in relation to other episodes, for example, that didn't have anything to do with space? What, uh, how important of a place does it occupy? Yeah, well, one of the justifications, as I saw for my research and eventually uh, the book, was that this story of collaboration had been um, ignored in favor of the story of competition. And I think in part that has to do with the way we narrate things. Mm -hmm. We like stories of uh, competition. We like to turn uh, politics into a kind of uh, game uh, where you have victors, where you have winners and losers. Um, I think zero-sum conceptions of how the world works, where there's always a winner and always a loser, and that you can't be uh, both a winner, uh, is uh, something that that, um, that dominates how we as historians work. And I think that one of the things that, that I tried to do in this book was to um, look at the other side, that there are people that see politics not as a zero-sum game, but as a possible win-win situation, and that these forces emerge periodically uh, in uh, during the Cold War, uh, and um, and that they have they played an important role among other things in preventing both sides from blowing each other up. I mean, it is astounding if you think about the animosities between the United States and the Soviet Union. If you look at the rhetoric of, uh, of Reagan about the evil empire, um, how did we avoid not killing each other? Um, and I think that the, the reason is because we found ways to work together, whether we liked it or not, right? Uh, in part because we had no choice, but also because we did choose peace rather than war. Uh, and um, it, it strikes me that we as historians don't focus enough on looking at those forces that chose peace in collaboration rather than war. And partly, I think it's because it's not a sexy story. It's just like, you know, if a condominium in Florida, I mean, that's a bad example. I mean, given what's just happened, but when technology works fine, we don't tell that story. It's as it should be. Yeah. It's only when you have spectacular failure that we begin to tell the story. And I think that, that, that we need to tell the story of peace. It's boring, right? It's not as interesting as things getting blown up, uh, but it's there. And is it, how, how does it happen? How do we make peace? And I think that um, the Apollo Soyuz test project and the example of collaboration in space it's merely an illustration of how both sides managed to figure out a way to work together and to avoid blowing up the world. And actually, that's a pretty dramatic story now that I think about it. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, I, I think you're right. I've long thought that you know, the tendency, if one thinks about uh, diplomatic history, international relations, I think the tendency has been generally to explain the outbreak of war and not the maintenance of peace. But one could easily begin from the premise that War is the more natural state, and peace is precisely the thing that has to be explained. As much as we may desire peace over war, I think most people do, nonetheless, uh, that may actually be uh, war uh, or conflict may be the more natural state. And explaining peace, I agree that it can be, uh, in a sense, dull or unexciting. It's obviously there's not bombs going off and everything. Uh, but I think it's something that does have to be explained. It has to be explained well. So it seems to me like that's a really... Uh, important contribution of of this book. Maybe turning a little bit away from sort of those political and ideological dimensions uh, of the co collaboration that you discuss in this book, maybe you can talk about some of the other ones, the other challenges that were actually not of a political or ideological nature, maybe ones that were technical or of uh, different natures. Uh, for example, you have a really interesting discussion of the docking mechanism for the Apollo-Soyuz. That story proves to be especially Curious, although I suppose it has its political and ideological dimension as well. But it seems to me that you're talking about a lot more than just those political and ideological things in this book. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about some of those aspects. Yeah, uh, that's a. I, I think that the way that I've been trained is to, uh, as an historian of technology and of uh, a historian of, of Russia and the Soviet Union, is to see politics everywhere. Um, but I think it's also interesting to consider those things which um, are not political. And uh, we often think of uh, mechanisms uh, as fulfilling a utilitarian function that is independent of the political systems that produce them. Um, and I think that that's 
it's actually not often true. There, there's politics everywhere. But at a certain point, of course, you, you need to have a functioning mechanism in order to have, for example, a docking between a Soyuz and Apollo capsule. Uh, and um, you can't simply produce that politically. You have to engineer it and design it. So what I looked at was the process of engineering a docking mechanism uh, that would connect the Apollo and the Soyuz capsule. Uh, And it was curious because uh, it started with a very political problem. And the political problem was that both sides, the United States and the Soviet Union, could only come together if they treated each other as equals. The problem with docking, uh, the actual design of docking mechanisms up until Apollo-Soyuz for the most part is that they involve the penetration of one capsule or uh, flying object by another. In other words, one would have to insert itself into the other. And this um, felt like a position of domination and submission in the relationship between the two docking parties. So they had to figure out a way to design a docking mechanism that would not penetrate one, the other. And uh, the solution was what they called an androgynous docking mechanism. That is to say, a docking mechanism that did not involve the penetration of one by the other. And instead, it created a sort of clasping mechanism, a kind of hug in space, Uh, that produced a neutral territory between the two capsules, a kind of Switzerland in space. And this would allow the two superpowers to connect to each other as equals without having to fear that one would dominate the other. And in this particular case, actually, what I see happening is a perfect kind of seamless combination of the politics of detente, which was based on the notion of equality, and the engineering of a design that would preserve a position of equality between the two capsules and not have one be penetrated by the other. And of course, it would take all male engineering cultures to think of docking in these ways, but they were, in fact, on both sides, all male uh, engineering cultures. And so this this, uh, docking mechanism actually fulfilled uh, and embodied the idea of detente whereby the United States and the Soviet Union could engage in a relationship that was win-win rather than one dominating the other, a winner and a loser. Now, the interesting point here, I have a brother who's an engineer, and uh, he we talked about this problem of engineering a docking mechanism between the uh, Soyuz and the Apollo spacecraft. And he said, well, I'm not sure that the, the sexual imagery of penetration and uh, being penetrated was actually um, decisive. That in fact, if I was an engineer and I wanted to link up the Soyuz and the Apollo capsule, I probably would end up designing something like what they called the androgynous, neither male nor female docking mechanism. That they referred to it in those terms is another issue, but that the actual practical problem of how you connect a Soyuz capsule to an Apollo capsule drove the uh, design of the docking mechanism and not anything else. And um, I think there is probably something to that. It shows that there are limits to politics and that uh, engineering uh, designs and problem solutions can actually be apolitical and in some senses uh, divested of all the baggage of gender and class and race and everything else that we historians constantly look for. Well, and I think you mentioned uh, in the book itself that we have to remind ourselves these are two capsules moving through space at something like 25,000 miles an hour or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll just note that um, an androgynous docking mechanism would be a good name for a rock group or perhaps a softball team, uh, but that could just be me. I'm wondering if uh, this issue of maintaining mm. equality and parity, it sounds as though this was even leaving aside in a kind of political sense, though clearly in that way too, it sounds as though this was an issue that came up in a number of different ways, uh, or at least it came up very prominently in this particular instance. Were there other moments and other questions uh, about which the issue of maintaining parity and equality also reared its head? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. There were all sorts that, you know, little things, seemingly little things. Yeah. So for example, it's a linguistic problem. How do we, we refer to the Apollo Soyuz test project? Well, uh, in the United States, of course, um, we refer to it by putting Apollo first. Uh, in uh, the Soviet Union and Russia, it's Soyuz Apollon. So uh, they put the Soyuz first. Uh, and that created, I think, a, a constant sort of challenge to the idea of parody is that, that, that the very way that we refer to it. Um, and even if you look at the two crews, the Apollo crew had three members and the Apollo capsule was actually bigger. And the Soyuz crew uh, had two members uh, and the Soyuz capsule was smaller. Uh, so this tended to uh, belie the sort of the idea of equality between the two partners. Um, and so that, that those are just two examples, but there are many other examples of where the principle of parity and of equality was violated by the facts on the ground, so to speak. Uh, and that made it kind of difficult to uh, figure out how to uh, uh, represent uh, the Apollo-Soyuz test project in a way that was in the spirit of detente. Yeah, I'll give you just, yeah, just one example sure. of that Absolutely. to follow yeah, up. Sure. Um, so I, I think that the the idea of how do you understand as a layperson the androgynous docking mechanism and its intent to try to equalize the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Apollo and the Soyuz capsule. Um, it, the Russian, the Soviets were much better at doing this for the popular uh, consciousness, let's say. And so there was this, um, uh, the most famous uh, satirical journal, Krokodil, in the uh, Soviet Union and its Apollo-Soyuz cover uh, had an image of the Apollo and the Soyuz capsule uh, joining together and then squeezing uh, the warrior of the Cold War and killing it uh, right in its sensitive uh, private parts area. Uh, and so the idea was that you would have this androgynous docking mechanism destroying the militaristic spirit of the Cold War and then producing a new era after it. Um, the most striking representation of the Apollo-Soyuz test project in the United States was very different, and it came uh, in that uh, magazine called Playboy, uh, which showed um, a woman being mounted from behind by a man. This was Playboy's uh, representation of the Apollo-Soyuz test project, and the man in this case was the Soviet Union. The woman uh, was the United States. And so the the engineering design, the idea of equalizing the relationship between the two and, 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 and having a, a coupling that was not a penetration uh, was completely lost on the editors of Playboy and on many Americans, in fact. Uh, and um, so it, it, it's really interesting if you look at the response, the popular response to the Apollo-Soyuz test project in the United States there was a significant part of the American press that believed that the Apollo-Soyuz test project was basically an instance of the United States getting screwed by the Soviet Union, being dominated by the Soviet Union. Uh, and I really found that narrative striking uh, and, um, and so very different from any kind of a sort of representation of Apollo-Soyuz in the Soviet context. Now, of course, the United States had a relatively free press and the Soviet press was controlled by uh, the state. Uh, but nonetheless, that, that inability to imagine a relationship of equals was far more prevalent in the United States than in the Soviet Union, both at the level of popular consciousness, let's say, but also at official government levels. Um, and that makes me wonder who really was the aggressor in the Cold War. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I guess not not androgynous enough, apparently. Although, but the docking me mechanism was in fact an, an androgynous. Uh, in light of what you what you what you just said, uh, I, I find particularly interesting a remark that you make in the book. Um, you write at one point uh, one of the more surprising aspects of cooperation on the U.S. side was that it turned out to be far easier to collaborate with the Soviets than with European. Allies. It's interesting that uh, that this was true, even despite the tendency that you're just describing to, uh, or the inability, more accurately, not uh, inability to be able to ident to be able to imagine a relationship of equals 
uh, that was present. And yet we still see that the U.S. is able to work with the Soviet Union quite well. Why was uh, the United States able to work so effectively for all of the difficulties and challenges that you've been pointing to, in, especially in relation to, in comparison to European allies? Well, I think that um, a big reason for that is that the United States turned to its European allies and asked them to uh, pay significant amount of money in order to uh, get rides into space and to cooperate with the United States. Uh, so that was one uh, thing that the United States did not demand of the Soviet Union. And in the case of the uh, American, the space shuttle, for example, uh, the United States felt like, well, you know, we've we've footed the bill for this. And anyone that wants to participate with us in the space shuttle program should um, uh, pony up uh, and pony up in a way that will satisfy the American taxpayer and not get us accused of uh, giving away American taxpayer money uh, to perfidious Frenchies and all you know, French people and all that kind of stuff. Um, in the case of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union funded, had its own launch capability. Of course, the European Space Agency did too, but the Soviet Union uh, funded its program separately. So the United States didn't have to worry about uh, voter uh, blowback with regard to this idea that somehow we were uh, footing the bill uh, for the Soviet space program. But that accusation, or at least a fear of that accusation, constantly surfaced with regard to suggestions about enhancing Western European cooperation with the United States. Now, the other problem with uh, the European partners is that they were treated uh, as uh, second uh, fiddles, that they should have to accept absolutely American uh, direction and American guidance, uh, and that they should be in a position of listening to American leadership and following it, uh, rather than having their own input and being treated as equals. And so again, uh, that that tendency, that American tendency of exceptionalism, of treating the rest of the world uh, as some something that should follow its lead and its example, I think that made it very difficult to collaborate with the Europeans, and particularly the French, right? The French had a lot of pride about the, the value of their technology, the quality of their engineering, uh, the, uh, the, the, the brilliance of their scientists. Uh, and they weren't going to accept uh, secondary status with regard to the United States. And I think that's one reason that the French were so eager to work with the Soviets. Interesting. Uh, I mean, another concern that maybe it, it is related to the, the, to the issues that you just described are concerns about uh, secrecy and about the loss of technical knowledge. Uh, was there a concern on the part of any of the players, but the Soviet Union and the United States in particular, that in being engaged in this collaboration, they would transfer uh, for a song a technical knowledge to the other side that was actually best kept secret and uh, in the hands of the United States or the Soviet Union alone? Yeah, that, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's another key factor. The U.S. fear that if we work with the French or if we work more closely uh, with the West Germans, uh, there are going to be elements who will hand over the technology that they find in the United States uh, in their collaborations with the Soviet Union uh, to the Soviet enemy. And so that fear constantly uh, caused American officials to doubt whether or not it was actually worth risking collaboration with supposedly our allies in Europe because they might just give away some of that technology knowingly or unknowingly uh, to the Soviets. Uh, and so that, yeah, I think that these these uh, regimes of secrecy in the United States were creating a, a barrier to collaboration with the Europeans. And, and by the way, I do have a, another point to make about regimes of secrecy. In the U.S. case, it seems that the United States was driven to develop regimes of secrecy because it believed that it was fundamentally superior technologically and scientifically to the rest of the world. So in other words, technological arrogance, a desire to keep our good technology and science to ourselves to prevent it from falling into the hands of the enemy, this is what drove American regimes of secrecy. The Soviet system of secrecy was very different. It was driven not by arrogance, but by insecurity, a fear that if the Soviet Union opened up and revealed openly what it actually was up to, 
that it would be shown to be technologically inferior and backwards. Uh, of course, the result often was the same, that both sides were incredibly secretive. Although I should point out that the United States, um, if we think about development of regimes of secrecy, let's say from 19, the death of Stalin up through the end of the Cold War, there is a progressive movement on the part of the United States toward more and more classification. Uh, in the Soviet case, even though they're starting from a position of almost complete and total classification, there is a very noticeable trend up through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s of an increasing opening to the world and of a declassification of its uh, technological and scientific infrastructure. And so in some ways, uh, this is counterintuitive, I think, to the way that we often think about the United States and the Soviet Union. The United States was becoming more secretive through the end of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union was becoming more open. Very interesting. And so that tendency of the American tendency towards classification and security, that was something that really continued throughout uh, the entire Cold War period? It was, I think, with a brief sort of uh, uh, interlude in the 1970s and under mm -hmm. Nixon, yeah. but very quickly with the demise of Nixon and then uh, with Jimmy Carter and then the emergence of Cold War II yeah. uh, in the Reagan era, uh, the tendency toward classification uh, was, um, well, there was huge momentum behind it uh, to the point where American academics in the uh, early 1980s and mid-1980s before Gorbachev came to power uh, were increasingly told that if they engaged in conversations at international conferences with their colleagues from behind the so-called Iron Curtain, that they could be accused of giving away uh, national security secrets and um, arrested or fined uh, for legal technology transfer. Uh, and I found that just incredible, yeah. you know, and, um, and uh, uh, not something that we often think about. Right. No, it's very interesting. And uh, in, in some ways that actually leads to the next thing I wanted to ask about. And that is, uh, I mean, I think the Apollo Soyuz mission is the sort of the centerpiece uh, of your book. It's a really dramatic moment. I mean, I certainly recall it from uh, postage stamps and uh, in Russia, there were even cigarettes. Um, but what, how does collaboration unfold after Apollo Soyuz? I mean, that's a big moment. What other sort of forms did it take? And I'm wondering if you, if you take a project like uh, Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, sometimes referred to as Star Wars, was this a complete repudiation of that earlier collaboration? And what happens, of course, with the end of the USSR? Do these collaborations continue or what happens with them? It was a dramatic sort of reversal of this movement toward collaboration. Uh, and, you know, there was, I think, every expectation on the Soviet side, circa, let's say, 1976, 1977, that the Apollo-Soyuz test project was uh, going to initiate a period of uh, widespread collaboration between the United States and the Soviet Union and the European Space Agency, for that matter, uh, and that, uh, that the Soviet Union should gear up and prepare for uh, opening up its uh, formerly very secretive uh, space technology and uh, aerospace infrastructure to the world. The Soviets continued to do that, but contrary to their expectations, uh, the United States did not. And in fact, the United States uh, shut down uh, and uh, became very closed. And I think a, a key symbolic moment of this uh, was uh, with the celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Apollo-Soyuz test project, uh, in which NASA, driven by the Reagan administration, was told uh, that it should not celebrate in any demonstrative way uh, the 10th anniversary of the Apollo-Soyuz test project. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and, and this was a slap in the face to many of the Soviet participants who were hoping, and I think in Russia, sort of a celebratory occasions, right? The anniversaries are really important. Uh, and they felt that maybe the 10th anniversary of the Apollo-Soyuz test project would be an occasion in which the United States would try to uh, reinitiate uh, the collaborative efforts that had been put on hold during Cold War II uh, and uh, really intensified after Reagan's uh, famous Star Wars speech. And so that was a, a kind of a moment where collaborative efforts uh, began to dissipate, but only in the United States. They continued 
aggressively so in the case of the Soviet Union through the various intercosmos missions, and then also through the development of the Mir space station at the very end of the Soviet Union, and then after its collapse through the 1990s, when it became a platform for collaborative international ventures of various sorts. And it was at that point uh, in the 1990s uh, that the shuttle uh, people began to get together with the Mir space station people to arrange hookups. And by the way, who was it that participated in those uh, hookups? It was all the characters that had participated in the Apollo Soyuz test project. Mm -hmm. Uh, They came out to reestablish those contacts between the United States and the Soviet Union. And they produced a collaborative relationship through the 1990s uh, that hooked up the mirror with the shuttle space station and laid the foundations for the International Space Station today. Uh, And uh, so that collaborative impulse continued despite uh, the refusal of the United States to participate for a good chunk of time in the late 70s and early 1980s. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. I'm wondering, to take a step back, how would you fit the story that you've told here into the larger history of technology? And you're a practitioner of that history, right? Um, With all of its implications for both human welfare and destruction, what place does this story occupy in that history of technology? Yeah. Well, I think of the word safety. Mm -hmm. It's not often that we think about the importance of engineering for safety until, of course, condominiums collapse, nuclear power plants explode, shuttles explode. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden we begin to think about the necessity of safety. And what strikes me as important, the place of the Apollo-Soyuz test project in the history of technology, is that it was a rare moment where the center, the focus of the engineering design project was safety. It was actually a safety test. What was it testing? It was testing the ability of two separately designed systems to be able to link up in space in case one of those systems was incapacitated so that the individuals that were in one capsule incapacitated would have an escape route and could survive. Uh, And so the whole focus of engineering was for safety and survival. And so when I think about, and, and that's very different, of course, from what drove engineering during the space race, that earlier phase, and that was an extreme appetite for risk taking. Mm-hmm. In other words, a downgrading of the importance of safety and design and an enhancement of risk taking. And the idea was that we roll the dice and if we, if we win, we win big, but if we lose, it could be catastrophic. And instead we have with Apollo Soyuz an emphasis on engineering for safety, uh, creating a docking mechanism that can provide an escape hatch. And that was also sort of understood in a broader sense of not only engineering safety for space exploration, but also providing safety in international relations so that the United States and the Soviet Union don't blow each other up. Um, So I think that this is an important moment in the history of safe engineering, secure engineering. And that's an example, I think, that needs to be continually sort of followed, not only in space exploration, but also in the design and construction of all sorts of uh, large-scale technological systems, that putting safety front and center and making it the core design principle, that this is what's needed in order to make the world a more livable and survivable place. Uh, so at any rate, that, that's that's how I would answer yeah, so, the question well, about the position. And it sounds then like basically peace, safety, and security really are uh, represent a kind of major red thread that's running through all of this, I guess, yeah? That's right. And uh, of course, peace is, uh, you know, the goal and um, engineering a docking mechanism that allows people to survive a crisis in space is also the goal and that you could do those two things at once, kill two birds with one stone. Uh, by the way, the, the, the primary engineer for the, uh, the androgynous docking mechanism, a guy named Vladimir Sidomyatnikov, who died in 2006, um, he is noted, at least among uh, those who are aficionados of space history and space engineering, as a pioneer in the field of space safety. That his docking mechanisms uh, provided a way to safely link up uh, objects in space 
that uh, would assure that people could survive in space. And I think that, you know, it's another importance of the Apollo-Soyuz test project is that um, when you're in space, um, it doesn't matter what your political, your personal differences are. You have to cooperate if you want to survive. Mm -hmm. You have no choice, right? And so I think that the Apollo-Soyuz test project was a perfect place to sort of test the principle of safe engineering uh, and to see uh, if people from very different backgrounds and ideological and political systems, uh, educations could come together and solve a problem, right? And Apollo-Soyuz test project proved that they could. It was, uh, it was actually astounding. You know, I, I, I think about the current debates about infrastructure projects in the United States. And in, in, in some ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of the Apollo-Soyuz test project of American politics, bringing yeah. uh, radically opposed Democrats and Republicans together on technical problems that they can work together with right. and so that they can transcend their ideological differences. And I think that this is also an example that ASTB, uh, the Apollo-Soyuz test project provided, is a a way to project sort of relations between people beyond politics and ideology. Uh, and it worked. Yeah. Well, in fact, you answered the last question that I wanted to uh, ask. I'll ask it nonetheless and uh, to give you the opportunity to elaborate further if you if you so choose. But I was going to ask, um, is the story you tell one of success and can it serve as a source of inspiration for the future? It sounds as though the answer is very much yes. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, look, um, Again, I'll get back to the point I made about peace being kind of the boring story that maybe for that reason we don't focus on it so much. And one of the reasons I think that Apollo Soyuz test project doesn't get talked about too much is because it worked. Yeah. It it, it and it did something it's not dramatic like, you know, stepping allowing someone to step on the moon uh or Gagarin being the first person in space these kind of dramatic moments. Instead what it did is that it linked up two capsules in a way that was, um, it was noticed certainly, and it had a huge impact, uh, but it, it worked and it's continued to work. The docking design, the androgynous docking mechanism all the way on up through to the present, by the way, the Chinese use the basic design developed for the Apollo Soyuz test project in their linking together of modules for the space station that they are mm -hmm. now populating as we speak. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's a dramatic indication of the success of the Apollo-Soyuz test project is that it produced a technology that allowed human beings to come together and work uh, in the vacuum of space. Uh, and without it, uh, I don't think that we would be where we are uh, in the, the exploration of space today. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I would say that as a stamp collector at the time and a seven-year-old at the time, uh, it was a source of great inspiration, I would say. This has been really a great discussion. Uh, the book, again, is Collaboration in Space and the Search for Peace on Earth, available from Anthem Press in November of 2021. Thank you so much, Professor Jenks. Thank you for the great opportunity to, to talk about my research as we academics love to do, as I said before. So thanks very much for your questions. This was uh, really fun. Absolutely. My name again is Paul Worth, and I'm signing off uh, for the New Books Network. Bye-bye.